Well, good morning, everybody. Glad you're here. You can find your seats. We are in the book of Zephaniah. Um, if you know what the Babylon Bee is, uh, Babylon Bee is actually a satire Christian site. Some people like it. Some people hate it. We tend to kind of, I don't know, okay, we like it. Um, I mean, there's some stuff on there that's kind of sketchy, but for the most part, we, if you want a good laugh, there's some funny stuff. And this week, there was a Zephaniah article about poor Zephaniah, how his dad thought he was such a loser because he only wrote three books and he needs to be like one of the major prophets who wrote more and he's wasting his life and he's not really accomplishing like the fame and praise and fortune that he deserves. Like that was a Babylon B article. So I said they're probably been listening to our series and came out with that. You know what I mean? They have no idea who we are. Anyway, we're glad you're here this morning. If you do have your Bibles again, we're in Zephaniah, and we're in the middle of our series called On That Day, talking about the day when God sends his son, when Jesus comes back to make things right, to make the world what it's supposed to be, and on that day. And we know this whole idea of on that day, that there is a day coming when things are going to change, things are going to end as we know it. Life was we know it's going to change. Science agrees with that. We don't argue with that. And the Bible has said that for thousands of years, even before we had the science to back it up. The Bible says there's going to come a day when God will finally make things right. Now, his people at this time, we've looked over this the last several weeks, but currently his people have gone, kind of gone through this, where we are in the story of Zephaniah. God in the Old Testament, Adam and Eve sinned, they fell away from God. God decided to raise up a people. He called out a guy named Abraham. Abraham surrendered his life to God. God said, okay, on you, Abraham, I'm going to build something great. I'm going to make myself known to the world through you. That was God's decision. He, he did that. It's the same thing he offers to you and to me. He says, I, I, I want to make myself known through you. It's the same offer that he offered Abraham. And he said, I'm going to make you as numerous as the stars in the heaven. I'm going to make you as numerous as the, the sands on the seashore, which to this point, over a third of the world's population traces their lineage back to Abraham. God's done it. He's, he's fulfilled it. And so he's laid that out. And then you see the story unfold from Abraham, this one man, how all these stories come and there's kings and there's other covenants and all this stuff that happens. And as a result, we get to a place where now finally the people of God are in the promised land. They're in Israel, this land that God had promised Abraham. And they're not doing well. The kingdom is split. They split over after King Solomon, the greatest moment of like the greatest period. It would be kind of like the 1950s in America, one of the top periods ever in the nation. The nation splits. It divides. There's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom, and they divide over who's in charge, just like we do. As a result, God raises up Assyria to punish the northern kingdom for their wickedness. Assyria wipes out the northern kingdom. Hezekiah is the king in the southern kingdom. Hezekiah, at first, is not a very good king, but eventually he repents. There's kind of a revival that happens, but then his son Manasseh comes to the throne, and Manasseh is the most wicked king, God says, ever. Because of Manasseh's wickedness, everything else that happens is because of Manasseh's wickedness that God says he has to judge. See, God doesn't let anything slide. He judges everything. Everything will be judged. Everything will be taken care of by God's standard and the way he wants it done. He doesn't just let things kind of sweep under the rug. That's not how God works. And so he says, there's going to be a time. Manasseh then, at the end of his, towards the end of his kingship, which is 55 years, repents. There's a revival. His son Amnon comes to the throne and is a wicked kid. 
It's amazing how when you grow up in privilege and you have everything and then your mom and dad decide to change that and decide to change how you've grown up and how you did things, you get mad. Say, how dare you, like Manasseh and Amnon both did. And then Amnon's killed, he's murdered, he only reigns two years. Josiah comes to the throne at age eight, Josiah is 31 years. Josiah leads one of the greatest times in Israel's history, one of the most wealthy, prosperous times other than Solomon ever in the history of God's people. <clears throat> Zephaniah is doing his ministry during this great time. Assyria then gets defeated because God said, you treated my people badly, so I'm going to judge you. He said, don't treat my people badly. Assyria ignored it. So he sent the Babylonians and the Medes to destroy Assyria. Necho of Egypt kills Josiah in a war. Babylon defeats Egypt. And then Babylon and the Medes conquer the southern kingdom and God's people go into slavery for the next hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. That's kind of where we're at and where we're kind of going in the story. 136-year period. Week one, we talked about the fact that Zephaniah prophesied, a day is coming when you will be swept away. Everything's going to be swept away. Then we looked at the fact that God says, but in the midst of you understanding that, and understanding that we're coming to a place where you're going to die, your life will be swept away, the world's going to be swept away and destroyed, what's your response? And God says, my response to you is, I want to gather you and I want you to seek me. That's what God says. He says, I want to gather you and seek me. Next slide, Coda. And so I, I want to bring you together and I want you to seek my face. And then he says, while I'm gathering and while you're seeking me, you're going to need to wait for me. There's going to be a waiting that you're going to have to do. And we hate waiting. And God says, you're going to have to wait because I'm not going to do it in your time when you want. I have a plan. I'm unfolding. And he says, and he taught us how to wait. He, he tells us, you can go back and listen to that message, about how we're supposed to wait properly for God. And then last week, we looked at the fact that he says, as you're waiting, you need to wait and you need to serve me with all of your heart. And he says, I'll know if I have your heart because it'll be about rejoicing and singing it's going to be your heart, O daughter Zion and Jerusalem. You see, our gladness, our joy is directly connected to that. And I don't know about you, and I said this last week, I have a problem. Typically when I'm waiting, it's not because I'm, I'm not really joyful while I wait, right? I'm not sitting in the car waiting thinking, oh, my family's taking their time. I bet you they're in there praying, just singing songs to Jesus, now, one of my kids probably is, and just waiting to come out, you know, to be with us. You know what I mean? That is not how I wait. I'm like, where are, honk, honk. I don't honk. I, I used to honk. I don't do that. But it's that impatience. And God says, no, you can wait regardless of what's happening around you. You can give your full heart to me, even if you know things are going to be swept away. Even if you're the only one that seems like is gathering near me and seeking me. Even if you're the only one that seems like you're waiting and everybody's getting what they want and you're not getting yours, you can wait with all your heart and trust me that I will come and you don't need to fear anymore. Now, here's how Zephaniah wraps up. This little book has everything packed in. It's the whole message of the Bible. It's all of the story of what God is doing in humanity in just these three small chapters. And where he ends is he says, on that day, on that day after you've waited, on that day after you've given your heart, when I come back, he said, on that day, he says, there will be fame, praise, and fortune for you. 
There will be fame, praise, and fortune among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortune. Like God tells us that everything that we pursue in our culture today, everybody that's trying to build and, and make a brand and get a bunch of followers and all the stuff that they're doing, he's saying, you already have that. Just like we looked last week or at the fact that we are all, that as we're waiting, we recognize it was two weeks ago, that we are princes, we are judges, we are prophets, and we are priests. We have an identity that those are our identity, but we have to look at how the ultimate prophet, judge, priest, and prince lived, and that was Jesus. And when he came from heaven to earth, he didn't look like the prophet, prince, priest, and judge they were looking for, and they rejected him. And Jesus says, I want you to look like the prophet, priest, prince, and judge that cannot have what is theirs right now, but can wait to serve others and to give your life to others because you're so confident that you are a prophet, a priest, a judge, and a king. You are righteous before God because of what he's done, and he is going to bring his fame and praise and fortune into your life. It's a promise and guarantee. It just probably won't be on this side of eternity. It'll be on the other And there are a bunch of priests and prophets and princes and judges that are running around trying to convince us that we can get our fame, praise, and fortune on this side of eternity. And if we're not, then we're doing something wrong before God. And I'm telling you, be very careful with that teaching. It doesn't mean that God doesn't make some people famous, doesn't give some people praise, doesn't give some people incredible fortune. That's everything he did with Abraham. There are wealthy people in the world, but God says that he commands the wealthy to be generous. Paul told Timothy, when you're teaching the church, I'm getting ready to die. They're going to kill me. The Romans are going to kill me, Paul says. And one of the things he says is, I want you to be sure that you command all those who are rich in the churches to be generous. It is a command. It's not an option. It's not you think about it. It is a command. And can I just tell you, you are some of the richest people to ever exist on the face of the planet in human history as an American with freedom and the ability to earn and give income and the government will actually credit you for it. And we can't do it. See, we refuse to see who we are in Jesus as prince, prophets, judges, and priests. And as a result, We don't see the fame, praise, and fortune that God has already given us, that's already guaranteed that I don't have to chase after. Now, does that not mean we need to have our needs met? (laughs) We we need to plan. We need, absolutely, God lays all that out in Scripture, that we need to be planning for the next generation, and we're going to look at that. But be very careful you don't fall into the trap that our world is constantly trying to do, which is to get fame, to get your praises, and to get your fortune, because that's all there is when you know that everything's going to be swept away. Get all you can for yourself before it's gone. That is not biblical Christianity. That is a false gospel. And do not listen to it. So Zephaniah goes on, he says this. On that day it will be said to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion, Do not let your hands grow weak. Yahweh, your God, is among you, a warrior who saves. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wonder, where is God our warrior at? Because it doesn't seem like he's showing up. By the way, that's why they rejected Jesus. 
They were expecting Jesus to come as a warrior, prince, prophet, judge, and priest who was going to lay the hammer down and annihilate people, and instead, he died and came back to life. And then they thought, okay, now he's going to do it, and then he ascended into heaven and disappeared, and they're like, oh, crud. That's different. See, it's easy for us to read the Bible like the people of Zephaniah. See, the, the Pharisees, Sadducees, and religious leaders of Jesus' day would have known this verse. They had to memorize the whole Old Testament to get to those positions. You couldn't be in those positions if you didn't have the Old Testament memorized. Memorized. Whole Testament. <laughs> all of it. Now, that's really all their system of education was. So every time you went to school, you memorized the Bible. That's all you did because there wasn't much else. So give them that. But still, they would have had this memorized, which is why they rejected Jesus. They would have said, yeah, it's time for us to be delivered from the Romans. You have now come to Jerusalem at the Feast of Passover when we were delivered from the Egyptians. Now it's your time to deliver us. We're afraid. It's your time to step up. And Jesus is like, yep, I'm God. I'm here among you. And they're like, then save us, O warrior. Do what we tell you to do. Show up on behalf. It's time for our fame. It's time for our praise. It's time for our fortune. And you can have it. And when Jesus said, no, you need to wait and and surrender your heart to me and trust me, I'm coming again to gather you and seek me. They said, we want nothing to do with that. You see, human beings have been running from this forever. We run from the relationship that God offers and the relationships that he offers and we run to the fame and praise and fortune of ourselves. We run from the church instead of running to God's people. We're gonna figure it out on our own instead of leaning into the people of God and looking for those that are seeking him. You know, there's a statistic that was thrown out. It's been thrown out for years that says, That if kids don't accept Jesus by the age of 18, the likelihood that they will goes down drastically as they go through life. And this week I was thinking, and I sent this to the staff team, but I said, okay, we've bought that little tidbit for a number of decades. That's something you hear all the time. We've got to get these kids to accept Jesus by age 18. They've got to give their life to Jesus. But the question I ask is, what Jesus are they giving their life to? Because here's another statistic that's current. 75% of those kids that trust Jesus between the age of zero and 18, well, let's say two, because they can't really touch the zero. Between two and 18, 75% of them will be apostate, leave the church, deny Jesus, and never come back again. So are they really accepting Jesus? Or are they accepting a Jesus that offers fame, praise, and fortune on this side of eternity, and then when they grow up and real life hits them in the face and real suffering and the real stuff hits them, they're like, I'm done with this. I'm out of here, and I'm not coming back. Because we've sold them, like the Pharisees and Sadducees and scribes of their day, who were the religious people, we've sold them a subtle false gospel, and it's killing us. We need the real gospel What are we accepting? Jesus said, if you accept me, it's an exchange of your life for mine. You give me your life. You surrender your life to me, and I give you life when I want it to be given to you, now and forever. Or you die and perish. Those are our options. 
Look at what Isaiah says about Jesus. Because when Jesus came, you have to remember, Jesus could have sought the fame, he could have sought the praise, and he could have sought the fortune, and he actually did the opposite. They had to go find him all the time because he was hiding. When the crowd showed up, they're like, the crowds are here. Where the heck's Jesus? Like, he's off again. Doing what? I don't know. He just goes off in the middle of the night. We don't know where he goes. We're all still sleeping, right? He wanders off. We got to go find him. Like, there's people to take care of. He's like, hey, I'm, I'm praising God. I'm meeting with the Father, celebrating. I'll be back. Don't worry. Have I not come? Chill out. And they're always panicked. Every time a crowd shows up, like, it's going to ruin his fame. It's going to ruin his fame. Like, we got to collect the offering and they're going to leave. I, mean, I don't know if they thought that or not, but probably. And Jesus is just content to be like, and then when he'd get a big crowd, we'll see in a minute, he would give the worst teachings. If you look in the New Testament, read John, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Read those Gospels and see that when Jesus had his largest crowds, the crazy, weird stuff he did and taught. I mean, it's stuff that you'd be like, I don't think that was the best time to do that. Like in Jerusalem, the reason they kill him and he's crucified, which we were talking about a minute ago, the first thing he does is he walks into Jerusalem, he makes a whip and he starts whipping people and throwing over all the money exchange and idols or all the um, offerings that are being made, the doves. He's setting doves out of cages and sheep are running out of the temple. He's the, hello, I'm here, welcome. Everybody's there to see Jesus. All the crowds are there and he is like ripping the temple system apart. And they're like, whoa. That's a little extreme, don't you think? Nope. My father's house is to be a house of prayer, and it's a den of robbers, and I'm not putting up with it. You're going to kill me anyway, so I might as well do something productive. Like, this is what Isaiah 53, 1 says about Jesus. Who has believed what we have heard? Again, this goes back to the idea of what are you accepting Jesus for? Why do you want to know Jesus? Do you understand that it's not wrong to want fame, praise, and fortune? It's not wrong to want to have an identity that means something. It's wrong to take authority in that versus giving God the authority over it. So what have you believed? And who has the arm of the Lord been revealed to? He, this is talking about Jesus, this is prophetic, talking hundreds of years before Jesus came. He grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. In other words, he's going to be a human. He's gonna, this Messiah is going to come. He's just going to grow up normal. He's going to grow up like a kid. He's not going to like appear out of the sky and, whoa, warrior man is here. Like that's not what's going to happen. Then he says, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him. No appearance that we should desire him. Most of you women would look at Jesus and be like, ooh, that's not my man. He goes on and he says, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of suffering who knew what sickness was. How do you know what sickness is? How do you know what sickness is? You've been sick. Right? Otherwise, you don't know what it's like. You just look at somebody like, I don't know, I don't, I've never been sick. I don't know how to, I don't know. Jesus could heal himself all the time, and this says that he was willing just to be sick at times. Just to be sick. He had the power to heal himself, and instead he decided to just be sick so he could experience the sickness. So he could empathize with us. I don't know about you, if I, 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 if I had the power to heal me, I'd be like, done! Okay, moving on for the day. Like, I, he goes on and he says, 
He was despised and rejected by men. He goes on and he says, he was like someone people turned away from. He was despised and we didn't value him. Yet, circle that, yet, he himself bore our sickness and he carried our pains, but we, in turn, regarded him stricken, struck down by God and afflicted. We didn't give him the fame, praise, and fortune due his name and we didn't recognize the priest, prophet, prince, and judge that was standing in front of us. And you do that every day. And so do I. That I chase some fame or praise or fortune for myself instead of chasing him. I, I change something that's going to make me feel better rather than chasing my true identity in Christ. John 1.10 in the New Testament, as Jesus is starting his ministry and the apostle John is writing, here's what he says about Jesus. He was in the world and the world was created through him. In other words, this Jesus was the one that created everything for his glory. The Father said everything's going to be created for the glory of the Son. Talk about an exchange of relationship. And he says, yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But, again, circle that yet or but, to all who did receive them, he gave the right to be children of God. If you are a child of God, you are a prophet, prince, priest, and judge, and you, are, you have the fame and praise and fortune of your father. And he says to those who believe in his name. You know what his name means? It means Yahweh saves. Those who believe that it's only through Jesus that you can be saved, that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament who saves. Remember, that's what Zephaniah said, a warrior who saves. But see, the battle he fights is not the battle we wanted him to fight. We wanted him to fight an earthly battle so that we could have fame, praise, and fortune, beat the Romans, and be over all the world. And instead he said, nope, I'm going to have to fight a spiritual battle first because I want the world to know me, and then I'm going to raise up a people that will be my light for the world to see. And that's what he goes on. He says, see, we were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. He says this, we're not one of God's children because of some lineage, earthly lineage, some bloodline we're connected to. We're not God's children because we've earned the right to be by working to be God's children. We're not God's children because some religious leaders, some, some men who have a will and know God's will or think they know God's will, tell us that we're God's children. We are God's children because of what Jesus did and what God did through him, period. Period. And in the Old Testament, everybody trusted that God was somehow going to forgive them so they could be his children. And in the New Testament, we look back to that. John goes on to say in his gospel in 1517, this is what I command you. This is Jesus speaking, actually. Love one another. If the world hates you, understand that it hated me before it hated you. My people during Zephaniah's time, they hated me. Then Manasseh's time, they hated me. They hated anything I had to say. They hated my laws. They hated my statues. They hated my ordinances. They just hated me. I was trying to protect them, and if I didn't explain everything and why and everything I was doing it, they wouldn't listen. He goes on, he says, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. You'd have plenty of Twitter followers. You'd be making a source income from YouTube. 
However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Unless you're not saying what God said, then there's no reason to persecute you. And you're not living like God lived when he walked on the earth because then there would be no reason to persecute you. And that's where I have to check my heart. He goes on and he says, if they kept my word, they would also keep your word. What? Yeah. If you understand you're a prophet, priest, judge, a prince, then they would keep the words that prophets, priests, judges, and princes speak as long as you're speaking from my word. But they do all these things to you. Why? Not because you're great. (laughs) Because you're not. Just because you say you know me. On account of me. Because they don't know the one who sent me. They don't trust the Father. They don't trust the Son. So they're not going to trust you. Or they've twisted the Father. They've twisted the Son. And they're trying to twist you. You see, we refuse to give Jesus the fame praise and fortune that is his because see the way this is going to work we'll see in a minute that when we give Jesus the fame praise and fortune that are his he promises to give that back to us and it's a forever throughout all of eternity exchange and we're going to see it in just a second it's pretty cool Zephaniah three seventeen says this he will rejoice over you with gladness he will bring you quietness with his love and he will delight in you with shouts of joy If you're having a hard time, can you just underline, memorize this verse, stick it on your mirror? There is a God, there is a heavenly Father, there is a a Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, there are angels in heaven, there is a heavenly family that is saying it rejoices over you and me. They don't look down like, there's a rejoicing over our response to believing who Jesus is, repenting, trusting him, sinning and saying, I don't want to do that anymore. There is a rejoicing with gladness, not like, oh, we've got to rejoice. Even though Matt's a moron, God told us we have to rejoice over him. Yay, Matt. That is not how it happens in heaven. Like the angels are gladly rejoicing because God's doing the work in this idiot right here and in the idiots out there, not me. And he says, if you understand this, that's where you're going to find the quietness in life that you keep searching for. You're running, 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 ah, just quietness, understanding that God loves me, that he rejoices in the fact that I'm his son, that I know him. And yes, he has stuff for me to do and I need to get out there and make him known, but there's a quietness in my spirit. And he says he will delight in you, not only with gladness, but with shouts of joy. That someday on that day, when the day comes, there are going to be shouts of joy for all us idiots that are sinners that have repented that God is gathering that Jesus is gathering to himself all of heaven is going to be breaking out in a party and saying finally yes we've been waiting on this since Genesis it is going to be incredible and they're going to be rejoicing over every single one of us like yes yes it's going to be incredible And we forget that because we look at the world around us and we're chasing fame, praise, and fortune instead of realizing we already are guaranteed a rejoicing and a praise and a fortune that's coming. I don't have to chase after it. 
He goes on, he says this, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this to the Thessalonian church. He says, for who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? Look at what Paul says. Is it not you? See, Paul knows Zephaniah. He says, when I think about Jesus coming back, I'm not thinking about all the wealth and my mansion I'm going to get and all the stuff I'm going to get. I'm thinking about all the people that God has saved and that he's used me to be a part of. That, that's what I'm thinking of this church, he says in Thessalonica. Like, I'm thinking of that. It's you that, that I'm, I'm not worried about my fame and my praise and my fortune. That's guaranteed. I'm worried about you. I want you to come to know the Lord. I want you. And then he says, for you are our glory and joy. And Paul puts an exclamation mark in the Greek. He's like, boom, you are the glory and joy. When I'm thinking about how I get through the next day, I think about what God has done through me and the lives of other people. And it gives me another day to fight. The other stuff's going to fade away. The money, the houses, all that's going to fade away. But how you've used your money, how you've used your house, how you've used those things, how you stored those things up so that you can bless others and bring them into the kingdom, that's what's going to matter. Not being irresponsible, but responsible. Look at what 3 John says. Dear friend, I pray that you may prosper in every way and be in good health physically, just as you are spiritually. Like John's like, I pray for these things. I pray for good fortune on people. He says, for I was very glad when some brothers came and testified to your faithfulness to the truth, how you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than this than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Dear friend, you are showing faithfulness by whatever you do for the brothers, especially when they are strangers. How do you know that you're being faithful in the truth? How do you know that when you're being a success on this earth and it impacts heaven? He says, when you're faithful to the true word of God and faithful to his church, his body. That's what this says. When you're more excited about people following God and seeing people walk with God than you are about the deal you got on Pinterest. We get so excited. We tell stories all day long about deals we got. When was the last time you just got excited about the best deal ever? Childhood with God. You are a priest, prophet, prince, judge. You have fame, praise, and fortune coming. But I saved five bucks. That's a good story right there. Driving down the road, it's all for sale. And then I negotiated down another five. I saved $10. I mean, we will... I'm not saying we shouldn't talk about those things or be excited what God's provided. He, I mean, John, again, prays. I pray that you'll prosper. I pray that you'll be healthy. Like, I, I want that for you. But he says, if you truly want to see where your fame, praise, and fortune really lie, how are you dealing with the word of God, the Bible, and how are you dealing with how you love God's people? He says, that's the testimony. That'll show you what you're chasing. That'll show you the fame, praise, and fortune you're chasing after. Zephaniah goes on to say this. He says it like three times, I will gather. He says it again, I will gather. Not we will gather, you will gather. He says, I will gather on that day those who have been driven from the appointed festivals. And they will be a tribute from you and a reproach on you or on her, on daughter Jerusalem. Let's see, who was driven from the festival and then became a tribute of God's goodness for all eternity and a reproach for anyone who refuses to see the tribute 
for eternity. Oh, Jesus. It's about those who have been driven. They drove Jesus out. Get him out of here. We don't want him here. And he was the tribute for them, but then he was their reproach. Then he says, yes, at that time, I will deal with all who afflict you. On that day, right now, I'm not going to deal with everyone who afflicts you. You got to live with them. <sighs> the, okay, I know I've said this before, but the, in the book of Job, if you've ever read the, book, read the book of Job, it's probably the oldest book of the Bible, the oldest story in the Bible. If you've ever read, kind of read the book of Job, it, it's miserable. Like, Job doesn't understand why all this is happening to him. He doesn't understand the spiritual battle that's happening. He's just getting blasted from every angle. He's lost everything except one thing. You know that one thing he hasn't lost? His wife, who is nothing but an affliction to him. Three times she's like, I just wish you would curse God and die so I can get away from you. I can be over this suffering and affliction and I can get on with my life. I don't know about you, but if I'm Job, at somewhere in the story, I would have been like, hey, God, can we talk a minute about her? And we don't find that anywhere in Job's story. He talks about a lot of other stuff, but he never throws her under the bus. And that would have been the first thing I would have done. I'd have been like, God, you killed all my kids. You've taken everything. I'd be pleased if you could take my wife to be with you forever in heaven. Amen. Job never prayed that. He took on the affliction. And he wouldn't curse God and do what she said. When she said, you need to just curse God and die. He's like, no, I'm not going to do that. Love you. Have a nice day. I'm going to go sit out and scrape my boils. Again, he says, at that time, I will deal with those. Now, how do you want God to deal with those who afflict you? I hope it's not get them. I hope it's God save them. And if they won't be saved, then I pray you do get them. But God save them. He goes on, he says, I will save the lame and gather the scattered. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. So, he says, if you're following me, you're going to be people that are driven from the festivals instead of invited. You're going to be a tribute and a reproach to people. You're going to be afflicted. You're going to see how lame you are. I love that. Like, not just lame as in our modern term, but how you really don't have much to offer. How scattered you are. Most of you know how scattered you are. I could look at some of you in the eyes and be like, yeah, my brain's everywhere. I can never focus. Great. God says you're scattered. He's going to try to help you with that. And then he says, how disgraced you are. You see, we want the fame, praise, and fortune without going through this. And God says, on that day when I come, all those that have gone through all this stuff will receive the fame, praise, and fortune. He has said this over and over again in the scriptures all the time. 2 Timothy says it this way, 4.1. Paul's writing to Timothy, his last letter before he dies. I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom on that day when it comes, proclaim the message. Persist in it, whether it's convenient or not. Rebuke, correct, and encourage with great patience and teaching. For the time will come where they will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, they'll multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. God's boring. That's just old. We gotta spice it up. What? 
goes on, he says, they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. But as for you, Paul says to Timothy, be serious about everything. Endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. He looks at Timothy and says, this is going to be what it's going to be like. I'm just telling you. You said you wanted to be in. Here's what in looks like. Hardship. It's going to be a lot of work. You're going to have to do ministry. He goes on, he says this. Paul says, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time for my departure is close. On that day is coming soon for me. I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There is reserved for me in the future the crown of righteousness with the Lord, with, with the Lord Jesus, the righteous judge, will give me on that day. And not only to me, but to all those who have loved his appearing. They loved how he came the first time and called them to be a suffering saint with them and they're going to love when he comes the second time and are cheering him on when he brings his wrath. He says, we get a crown. Do you know what a crown signifies? Praise, fame, fortune. It says you're a prince with authority. You have the right to judge. That's what a crown signifies, right? Look at what Revelation says we're going to do with that crown. Whenever the living creatures give glory, this is John seeing heaven and how it works on a regular basis. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne, worship the one who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne and say, our God, or our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. Fame, praise, and fortune are yours because you've created all things, which is what John said about Jesus in John 1, and because your will, and because of your will, they exist and were created. It's all your fame, all your praise, all, all the crowns come out and get thrown. And you know what Jesus does? He picks them all up and he's like, I'm gonna give these back to you. Okay, let's do it again. Here it comes. Okay, woo! It's like the wave, right? When you do the wave and everybody does it together and then there's the one section that's like, I'm not doing it. And you're like, yeah, stop it! Like, come on! It's the same, it's like this wave of crowns being thrown out and then it's coming back around, like, give me my crown back. It's coming my way, okay? Woo! And then it comes back around. That's what heaven's gonna be like. It's why we love sporting events so much. We love to be a part of that kind of thing. It's because it's a reflection of heaven itself. That you're giving praise and glory not to yourself. You're per- if one person does the wave, you look like a moron if no one goes with you. Woo! Woo! I mean, you just stand there and do it. it, didn't it? But when everybody's like together and we're like, it's just this amazing picture. And then the people, it's just wow. That's heaven. So we're good. yes, we're going to receive that crown, but we're going to understand who gave it to us and why we have it. And we're going to throw it back. And he's like, here, it's come back around. Put it back on. Okay. That's, that's heaven itself. And that's how our lives should reflect now on this side of eternity. And instead, we're like the bump in the rug sitting there. Going, Stupid wave. There's no gladness in that. Right? I don't have to do this. God's like, just you understand the relationship that I've given. You understand what I've 
helps you to participate in. When Jesus was trying to communicate what real fame, praise, and fortune was going to be in his ministry, he gave his first sermon. It was the worst sermon ever. It is a sermon that in modern terms you could not build a church on in America hardly at all. It's sad, but it's true. He gave a sermon that everybody was like, huh? Like, here's first sermon. First time out of the gate. He's called his disciples. His disciples were with him. Like, here comes the Messiah. The warrior's going to save. Ah. And he goes, when he saw the crowds, he sees all the crowds, he climbed a mountain. So you see crowds, and you run away from them and climb a mountain. Yep. I decided to go mountain climbing since all the crowd was here. And you think, well, he's going to climb the mountain so he can preach, right? Nope. He climbs the mountain, and then he sits down. He climbs up the mountain. He's like, okay, that was a good climb. Let's sit down. And he calls his disciples to him. And he began to teach them. Teach who? People can't hear him. He's on a mountain. They're far away. He's teaching the disciples. You want to know why? It's their responsibility to hear the message and take it down to the people and scatter out among the people to tell them what was heard on the mountain. Let me see. That, that's a really good picture of another time that God was trying to get his people to hear his word. Oh, Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain, got the word of God, and then came down from the mountain to distribute it. That's the picture we have here. It's not Jesus climbed a mountain and was yelling a sermon out to masses who couldn't hear him. They didn't have speaker systems. He literally called his disciples, sat down and said, okay, I'm going to give you the message and then you guys got to go out and tell it. Because that's how my ministry is going to be from this time until I come back again on that day. From this time until I come back on that day, it's going to be like this. You come to me, you seek me, you get a word and you go out. You get a word, you go out. You get a word, you go out. That's what we do. That's how we're going to do this. That's what he modeled. And in every movie I've ever seen, it's build a stage, climb a mountain, and you scream at the top of your lungs to try to get, that is not what happened here. And then, not only is that weird, he wanders away from the crowds, and it could be the crowds thought it was going to be a Moses moment, like the cloud's going to come and envelop the mountain like the Old Testament with Moses, and like, oh, and instead it's like, oh, he's just sitting up there with his fellows. Like, that's kind of exclusive. Like, we're down here. We got needs. We got stuff going on. We got people need to be healed. There's stuff to do. And you're just going to wander up there and talk to your little disciples? And here's his message. The poor in spirit are blessed. The word blessed, by the way, in all of this, in the original Greek, means happy, joyful. That's what the word means. It doesn't mean fame, praise, and fortune. It means an inner quietness, peace. For the kingdom of heaven is theirs. It's theirs who understand they're poor and they need the happiness and blessing of God. Those who mourn are blessed. Those who mourn, they're happy. They understand what true joy is because they'll be comforted. The gentle are blessed for they will inherit the earth. See, God's going to be very gentle when he comes back. See, we don't understand. God's gentle. You can gently murder someone, I've said this before, or you can viciously murder someone. <laughs> God's still going to kill everybody. Everybody's going to be wiped out. He goes on and he says, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are happy. 
for they will be filled. The merciful, they're happy, joyful, for they will be shown mercy. The pure in heart are happy, for they will see God. The peacemakers are blessed. They're happy because they will be called sons of God. Those who are persecuted. So, so you're kind of following up until that point, right? Like, okay, okay, maybe, maybe. Now Jesus drops the hammer. Those who are persecuted for righteousness, for doing the right thing, are really happy. You should have full joy, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs, which is where he started at when he said the kingdom of heaven is theirs with those who are poor in spirit. Because see, when you're persecuted, you recognize, yeah, I'm poor. I'm poor in spirit. Of course I'm going to be persecuted. Then he goes on, he says, you are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because reward is great in heaven. For this is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Don't assume that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy but fulfill. See, Jesus says the real fame and fortune will be yours in heaven, not now. This would have been radical. They were expecting Messiah to come, overthrow the Romans, and give them all these things that he lists, and they would never be persecuted again. They would never be insulted again. And instead, Jesus took on all those things. He was poor in spirit. He mourned. He was gentle. He was righteous. He hungered and thirsted for God. He was persecuted and insulted. He took all of that on and said, this is what my ministry until the day I come back is going to look like. Matthew says it this way in verse, right after, later in his sermon. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of people to be seen by them. Otherwise, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Are you serving God for the fame, praise, and fortune to get your name out there, to get your books sold, to get your stuff? If you are, you may want to be real careful to wonder what the reward you're seeking is. John 12 says it this way, the one who loves his life will lose it. The one who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. In other words, what was the first sermon I give, gave? What, what did I tell you to do? What did I tell you to expect in that sermon? Like, this is what it looks like to follow me. He calls the disciples. You guys going to follow me? Like, you got to go tell the people this is what it looks like to follow me. Where I am, there my servant also will be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Praise now, my soul is troubled. What should I say, Father? Save me from this hour. Jesus is like, I don't want to die. I don't want to go through having sin put on me. But he says, but that is why I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name, not mine, not my will, but your will be done. And a voice came from heaven and said, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And the crowd standing there heard it and said it was thunder. Others said that an angel had spoken to him. Like, you're standing there, Jesus is praying, and like, what was that? I don't know, maybe a thunderstorm's coming. You know, we do live in Indiana, they pop up from time to time. John 17 goes on, Jesus spoke these things. He looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, so that the Son may glorify you. You gave him authority over all flesh, so he may give eternal life to all you have given him. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and the only one you've sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you've given me to do, gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. 
He's like, I understand that I'm going to leave this earth and I'm going to return to you. And I just hope when I come back to you that the deal's still on, that when I come back to you, all the fame and praise and fortune's still there because I'm going to take on the sin of the world and I don't, that scares me. There's a concern there, a humanly concern, not a doubting of God concern, a I'm taking this on, we're still good, right? I want the world to see we're still good. Yes, we are. World, this is what it looks like. You can get dirty. You can get out there in the trenches. You can get with sinners and you can save them and make them, and it's okay. God will still glorify those that are his. Matthew says it this way, and the son of man comes in his glory on that day and all the angels with him. Then he will sit on the throne of his glory and all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another just as a shepherd shepherd separates the sheep from the goats he will put the sheep on his right right and the goats on his left then the king will say to those on his right come you who are happy blessed by my father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world then the righteous will answer him look at their answer they don't answer that's right We've been waiting for our fame and our praise and our fortune. That's why we've been doing this. Give me some. Give me that money. He go, no. Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, I assure you, Whatever you did for the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Notice he uses the word brothers. He doesn't say the world. He says brothers. There's a distinguishing thing we have to be careful with as Christians on how we serve the world versus how we serve brothers and sisters in Christ. And we do a terrible job of that. There's a difference And Jesus lays it out often. It doesn't mean we don't serve the world. We don't give them a cup of water. We don't do those things. But there's a difference between how we do that and the people that are running around doing that, but they're not connected to a church. They're not pleasing God. Goes on and he says, Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And basically he says the same thing. You didn't do these things for the brethren. You did it for everybody else, but not for my people. Depart from me, you goats. You see, and here's the thing about goats. Goats consume everything for themselves. That's what goats do. They'll eat anything. For their own fame, their own praise, and their own fortune. Sheep don't. Sheep wait till the shepherd takes them to the right pasture and then they eat. Big difference between the two. He goes on and he says this. Zephaniah says in verse 19, Yet at that time I will deal with all who afflict you. I will save the lame and gather the scattered. We read this. I will make those who are disgraced throughout the earth receive praise and fame. So why are we in this mess? Why are we in this mess that God has to restore this? Well, remember Genesis. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say? Circle that, underline it. Did God really say? We have a lot of false preachers, false pastors, false people running around saying that God said stuff and they're twisting it and it's not what God said. 
They're taking it out of its context, right? Instead of taking heavenly things and understanding those are heavenly things, they take those heavenly things and they make them earthly things and then they ignore the earthly things and like sweep them under the rug. God says, what did I say in the full council? You can eat from any tree in the garden? No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. God's holding out fame, God's holding out praise, and God is holding out fortune on you, Eve. That's why he won't let you have that tree. And if you eat from that tree, then you're going to have the fame and praise and fortune that God has. It's always the trap we get into. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for look, obtaining wisdom. Now I'll know how to get the fame and praise and fortune that I've been chasing for if I eat this piece of fruit. I'll be like God. They were already like God. They were the only creatures created in God's image who could like speak and do stuff and write. And it wasn't enough. You see, that's the enemy of fame and fortune. Listen, in our church, let's be honest, we're not prosperity gospel people. What I mean by that is, you know, you you follow Jesus and he makes you rich and does all these great things. There's just all these miracles fly off the shelf. We don't preach that. We don't teach that. But if we're not careful, we can all fall into this trap. You ready for this? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. How much is enough? Just a little bit more. And then you get that little bit more and you spend it and you're like, oh, now I need more. And then you live on that budget for a while and then you need a bigger budget and a, and a bigger budget and a bigger budget or you just, you never know what you spend. So it's always, I don't know what I'm spending. I don't know what I'm doing. So it's just, well, I just need more. I just need more. It's not enough. And, just, and you just, just stop. What does God say about finances, about how to do life? Like that's the issue. And instead, we're chasing everybody else's wisdom instead of just looking at God's. We're trying to find the fame and praise. We'll listen to some guy on YouTube about his incredible marketing strategy. Just just do what God says. Do simple. Do you know how much trouble I could stay out of if I just went to bed on time, got up early, went to work, and came home? That doesn't leave very many hours for me to do stupid stuff. It eliminates a lot of stupid in my life. And God says, I want you to rest. I want you to work six days and rest one. Like, if I just do that, I don't have, to, I don't have time to spend even. I'm busy at work. I'm busy sleeping. I don't buy stuff on Amazon in my sleep. Never have. I don't wake up and I'm like, oh, click, and go back to bed. I just stay asleep. Like, if we would just do simple that God has said, we But instead, we look at all the delightful stuff and, oh, it's just one more click. It's one more video, one more movie, and I'm up till 2 a.m., and then i got to get up. And He goes on and says this in Revelation. Jesus says, look, I am coming quickly. My reward is with me. Me. Typo. To repay each person according to what he has done. And I am the Alpha and the omega, that's the beginning of the alphabet and the end of the alphabet, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, happy are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city by its gate. God says there's gonna come a day where you come to eat the tree, not because you wanna get something, but because you finally recognize I've given you everything. You're gonna come to eat the tree and rejoice because it's like, I've got everything. 
We get to eat together. The tree of life. And he says, blessed are those who wash their robes. You know what you're washing your robe in? The blood, Revelation says. And it comes out white as snow, not red and stained. As we wrap up, Jesus has a few more words for us in Matthew and in Luke. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, she who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather you or gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate for I tell you, you will never see me again until you say, he who comes in the name of the Lord is the happy one, is the blessed one on that day. He goes on to say, do you think I've come to bring peace on the earth? No, I've come to divide people against each other. I've come to divide because when you decide to follow me and you're no longer pursuing the fame and praise and fortune of this world, the world can't stand that. And Zephaniah wraps up his book, this small prophet, right? Didn't get to be Isaiah or Jeremiah or one of the larger prophets, says this. At that time, I will bring you back what Jesus said he longed for, to gather his people. I will bring you back, yes, at the time I will gather you. How many times does he have to say it? At that time, at the time, on this day, on that day. He doesn't say right now. All the way through the scriptures, like wait, on that day. It's all the way through, and then we keep trying to, now, 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 no, wait. He says, I will give you fame and praise among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes. Yahweh has spoken. Did God really say? Yes, Yahweh has spoken. And he said, I'm going to do it, not you. I'm just asking you to submit to me in the simpleness of life, to walk with me, to allow me to work in your life. Because there's a day coming, and on that day, it'll all make sense. Everything you've done, your life, the sin, the good things, all of it will click. And in a moment, you'll be like, finally. And when you're given that crown of righteousness, you will throw it back, and he'll give it back. And the rest of eternity is going to be an exchange of just giving fame and praise and glory to God. Him giving us that glory back to us, we giving it back to him. And that's exactly what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have been doing for all of eternity. One God, one glory, three persons making it happen. Guys, this is incredible. The question for you and I is, do we really know Jesus? Are we chasing fame and praise and fortune? Do we know who our identity is? And if you don't, can I just tell you, God says you can. And it's not by like knowing more. They chase knowledge by eating the tree of knowledge. It's by trusting the one who said these things are true if you know me, period. They're true of you, period. You may not feel it. You may not ever have it on this side of eternity, but it is a guarantee. And if you've never made that decision to say, Jesus, I am done. I am not someone who deserves praise or fame or fortune. I am nothing. Then come before him and say, I surrender. I give you my life. Make me poor in spirit. Make me merciful. Help me. Change me. And for those of us who know him, we got to constantly be asking ourselves and be reminded, am I falling back into the fame, praise, and fortune? 
a fortune of this world trap or am I truly living for Christ and his fame and praise and fortune? And so any fame, any praise, any fortune I give, I take it and throw it back to God. And if it's given back to me by others, I give it back to God again. And it's an incredible exchange I keep making before the God of the universe. That's our role. And if more Christians did that, we wouldn't have 75% of people leaving the church and never returning who trusted Christ at a young age. And we're the ones that have got to make the change because there's coming a day. And on that day, it's going to be worth it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that uh, Zephaniah was one that would follow you and spoke in his day. During a time of prosperity, he gave this message that would have seemed so foreign when things were going so well. And he gave this message as someone who was a minority. He was someone who probably had dark skin and looked different than everyone else. And he was a minority because he was of the lineage of the king, King Hezekiah, and so he had privilege. And so here's this privileged minority who had to come and bring this very true and full message of what the Bible preaches to the people, and they didn't want to hear it in their day. And Lord, that's the message that we have to give. It's a message that says there's coming a time when we're going to be swept away. And God is trying to call you to gather to him and to seek him because he loves you. And he sent his son to come and gather and to seek us and then to pay the price we deserve for the sin that we committed. And then we now wait for that son to return that he came the first time and paid the price. But now we wait. And as we wait, you call us to give us your whole heart and to believe that there is a fame, a praise, and a fortune that's going to be yours. And when you give it to us, we're just going to gladly give it back. And so, Lord, this morning, I pray that that would be our heart. That if there are those out there who are listening online or in this audience who have never fully surrendered to your fame and your praise and to your fortune, I pray today would be the day they do it. They say, I'm just done. I have no quietness in my life. There's no joy. There's no real, true, lasting happiness. There's no peace. I just want you. And for those of us who are believers, I pray that we wouldn't get tired of preaching this message, that we wouldn't grow weary and our hands grow weak, as Zephaniah says, but that we would gird ourselves up and understand, like, this is the message. This is the truth. And that we would be your ambassadors. We'd be your sheep and not be found as goats one day. We pray in your name.